on a thousand planets and spreading out. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. To the bat poles. May the force be with you. Who is that mask man? Avengers, assemble. Good afternoon and welcome to the Fantastic Forum. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. Some genre-related news before we get to today's discussion. San Diego Comic-Con International 2020 has been canceled due to concerns related to the coronavirus. The cancellation is the first in the event's history, and organizers say the show will return next year. Attendees and exhibitors are being contacted with instructions on how to either request a refund or transfer their badges to Comic-Con 2021. The decision follows California Governor Gavin Newsom's April 14th press conference during which he said, large-scale events that bring in hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of strangers are not in the cards for the foreseeable future. Plans for a Comic-Con museum in San Diego, which was due to open in time for Comic-Con 2021, were also shifted. A new timeline will be announced in the coming months. Amasia Entertainment has partnered with Universal Pictures to develop a new movie based on The Green Hornet and Cato. Amasia secured rights to the property in January. Universal President Peter Kramer said in a statement, The Green Hornet is one of the most iconic and beloved superhero tales ever created, and it has entertained generations of fans in every form of storytelling. We are thrilled to be partnering with the entire Amasia team to launch an exciting new cinematic world for Britt Reid, Cato, and the Black Beauty, and we can't wait to share it with global audiences soon. Amasia co-founder Michael Helfand added, Universal will be a great home for our new Green Hornet and Cato. The team at Universal share our passion and enthusiasm for the property and will devote the resources to launch a truly global franchise. Coincidentally, Universal was the original distributor of the 1940s serials featuring the characters. Mark Raykup of Fiberglass Freaks announced this week that he is planning to retire from the business due to family concerns. Only five more of his officially licensed 1966 Batmobile replicas will be produced. If you want one, contact Fiberglass Freaks right away. The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson and directed by Matt Reeves, has a new premiere date. The film was originally scheduled for release on June 25, 2021, but will now open in theaters nationwide on October 1, 2021. Today, we're talking about our favorite movie, television, comic book, and literature sequels in this special coronavirus edition of Fantastic Forum. And joining me for today's show, I've got a wonderful panel of experts here. I'm going to start with the wonderful Camille Richardson. Uh, we also have Brandon Troy of Movers and Shakers Unlimited. And courtesy of the Great Geek Refuge, we have the one, the only, Mike Lunsford. Welcome to the show, folks. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So, uh, of course, uh, the big news actually from last week, as we heard in the intro, is the cancellation of the San Diego 
Comic-Con, Comic-Con International. And, of course, due to concerns surrounding the coronavirus, uh, first time that show has ever been canceled in its 50-odd-year history. And uh, a lot of people are devastated. Um, in fact, Brandon, who has been a regular attendee for over 10 years, now has nothing to do in July. Please, share, share your pain, Brandon. Share Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, I'm on my imaginary couch right now. Um, but uh, uh, if you wanna, if you wanna uh, learn more details about, you know, my thoughts on it, I'll do a quick plug. Uh, I did talk about it on Friday on my show um, with a friend of mine. But uh, be that as it may, my my first, you know, initial thought was I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, we're not gonna have a chance to do Hall H, and don't get me wrong, Hall H is great, or I'm not gonna be able to do the exhibit hall four. But like my media thing was. You know, I'm not going to be able to, you know, hang out with friends that I otherwise would see during that week because, I mean, there are folks that don't have a chance to go to, um, or I should say, better yet, they, they can't afford to do a trip in the U.S. and the only trip that they can do in the U.S. is Comic-Con. They save the entire year just to do the one trip, the one U.S. trip that they have, which is Comic-Con. So like friends from Australia, friends from the U.K., uh, you know, thankfully, um, I did have a birthday recently, so I had them on on uh, Zoom, so that was cool. So I still kind of had my Comic-Con without technically having my Comic-Con. Um, my first con experience was San Diego Comic-Con. That was the first con <laughs> really? I've ever attended. That, that was your first one? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, you picked the heck of a one. <laughs> go big or go home. Yeah, right? So yeah, go big or go home. That was my first con that I went to. It was back in 2009. I have not missed a Comic Con since 2009. It's weird, you know, not you know prepping for you know that time leading up until you know that week. Uh, you know, already putting my itinerary together of okay, we're gonna uh, have dinner with so and so, or you know, I'll be able to hang out with so and so, you know, that day, or or uh, you know. This this minutia kind of like that, but um, you know it's understandable why it was canceled. It's a bummer, but it's understandable because I mean, let's be honest. You know, with cons in general, let alone San Diego, cons are not very much known for their cleanliness or for their <laughs> attention to detail when it comes to <laughs> to being sterile. So, um, so I, I mean, I get it. It's just a bummer, but as I said, I was able to kind of. Have had my cake and eat it too this past week, so yeah. it's all good. Well, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that cleanliness thing because the personal hygiene issues of congoers—that's practically uh, a running gag. But I get it, you know, being a uh, kind of OG uh, congoer here. I mean, whether it's a two-day show or a three-day show or a four-day show, my right hand to God, it seems like there's some people. Who have no idea what soap and water is for one of those whole things. To be fair, you know, to be fair it has gotten better, but this still doesn't really. It still is a. Uh, it still can be a touchy, touch and go thing there. So you know, it, 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 it's better that they just canceled it all together. And then on top of that, too, with a lot of the conventions, let alone San Diego, you know, they've been using it. Uh, as like um, pseudo hospitals and places for yeah. um, uh, for uh, folks that are you know out of uh, that don't have shelter. So like mm -hmm. you know 
with, with the yeah, that brings other questions too of you know how long would it take you know to make sure that it would be safe to actually have an event there even if they decide to postpone it. Well, that just means it's going to be bigger and better whenever they do get around to having the thing. So tip of the hat to San Diego Comic Con, biggest show of all, and um, you know we're going to miss it this year. Uh, something else, uh, during our sort of, I, I call it the coronavirus edition of Fantastic Forum, because of course we are all practicing social distancing, uh, gathering from the relative safety of our own homes and uh, you know, connecting via the miracle of modern technology. But uh, one of the things that we've been uh, talking about on an ongoing basis, the distribution of comics, because several weeks ago, Diamond Comics Distributors, the semi-benevolent monopoly that handles distribution of all the books in the UK and the United States to the specialty stores, announced that they were going to temporarily suspend delivery of comics. And that has obviously severely impacted retailers. Uh, this was closely followed by the announcement that Diamond would be suspending payments to their creditors. <laughs> and that was also uh, not exceptionally well received, obviously, mm. on the part of Diamond's creditors. But uh, one of the uh, retailers who has been directly affected is uh, our own Camille Richardson, who just happens to manage Phantom Comics here in the District of Columbia. Phantom is still operating there. Uh, you can uh, shop online, uh, I believe, uh, you know, yes. to uh, be able to safely practice social distancing. So, uh, but Camille, uh, I understand you guys are actually gonna have new books. And how can this be without Diamond Comics distributors? So basically, late last week, we got information saying that DC has been able to reach terms with two other suppliers that are going to start putting out certain print runs. So it's not like we're going to see like the very next Batman book, but we're going to see some of the smaller print runs like Daphne Byrne or some of the things that were like second and third printings, stuff like that. Um, I know for us, we did put that up for all of our customers and emails, and we've been posting all through social media. But that's just for floppy comics. Before that, we actually were given some information through Penguin, that we were able to at least get new trades. So we've been going crazy trying to get all these trades that have been released through April, getting those out now. And then we've met all the terms for the new books that are going to be coming out from DC through these new distributors. Uh, we do understand that Diamond is still on hiatus. Um, they have said that they are targeting for mid to late May for restarting everything which would be great because as of right now, you know, we still don't have any info on Marvel or Image. Uh, a lot of the smaller publishers like Scout and Archie and things like that, they're, they're finding other means as well, other suppliers, that kind of thing. But it is a very, very, very strange time for this whole thing. And I mean, right now, you know, you can purchase everything online at phantomcomics.com with everything that we have in our inventory. And then new weekly floppy comics will be starting up again on the 28th. So it's also a little bit strange because now they're not releasing on Wednesdays. DC is releasing on Tuesdays. I don't know if this is going to be a thing that's going to remain going forward or what, but it is definitely a shift in what we've known for a while. Well, uh, under the current circumstances, it, is, it isn't as if people are going to be showing up at the stores to pick their books up, unfortunately. But I gather You'd be that, surprised that... the number of folks who reach out asking if they can come by to get their stuff. And it's like, 
we can mail it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I guess people have the expectation that whatever day the books arrive is going to be the day the books ship. And so, uh, you know, yeah, Tuesdays. I mean, but hey, everybody's gotten accustomed to Wednesdays just sort of being the day. But, you know, the other thing that's very interesting about this, and, and this is the aspect that we've been discussing for the past several weeks uh, on the show, is that uh, the way that we come out of this whole coronavirus pandemic situation uh, is going to be very different. And I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, yeah, when we get through this and things get back to normal. Sorry to tell you, people, things are never going to be normal again. And I'm doing the air quotes thing with my fingers. Um, there's going to be some sort of new paradigm once we get through this. Uh, exactly how comics distribution changes remains to be seen. Uh, as I said, Diamond has been a semi-benevolent monopoly for some time, but uh, the whole way that it kind of came around that uh, Steve Jeppe's company cornered the market uh, was an aborted attempt on the part of Marvel to create a distributorship. And when that fell apart, uh, Steve Jeppe was there to pick up all the pieces. So uh, I'm sure that uh, Marvel now is looking very closely at what DC is doing. Some of the other publishers are looking very closely at that because if the opportunity arises to cut uh, Diamond out of the loop, I'm sure they will take it without hesitation. And, uh, you know, so we just got to see how all of this thing shakes out uh, and, um, and what happens. Because personally, and, you know, don't get me wrong, Steve, if you're listening, I love you. I love you to death, you know. But... <laughs> I hate this distribution model. I really do. And, uh, you know, Camille, I'm sorry. It is, I love going to comic stores. But when comic books, I mean, being the old guy of the group, I can tell you, when comic books were widely available at newsstands and drugstores and, you know, places like that, it was, I mean, all right, it, it, it was bad in the sense that you couldn't necessarily find the books at the same location every week, but they were way more, more widely available. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, but, you know, but the fact is they were more widely available and, and that made all the difference. Anyway, you're listening to Fantastic Forum on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. I'm joined today by Camille Richardson and Brandon Troy and Mike Lunsford. We have been talking about a little bit about comics distribution, a little bit about the cancellation of San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, Camille, was there something else that you had wanted to add about this whole distribution thing? Uh, just stay tuned is really the big thing at the moment. We're kind of waiting to hear on everything like everybody else. Um, you know, hopefully if Diamond does get up mid-May, mid it will bring everything up back to going to normal and, and hopefully get, you know, Marvel back on it and Image back on it. But right now it's just kind of hard to say. Certainly, Diamond is going to do everything they possibly can uh, to get back up. I mean, they're probably looking with some interest at what DC is doing. And I mean, you uh, also have to consider, too, what kind of contracts they had with publishers. So even though DC might be doing this thing right now with an alternate supplier, it's not to say that they're not going to necessarily just go right back. So, you know, those are those little details that we don't know. Well, that's true. But the, the one caveat that I would throw in there, uh, there is probably some sort of clause in the contract that allows for some flexibility in the event that Diamond stops shipping. 
You know, uh, you which, think, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, but I mean, who would who could have possibly foreseen this? But but actually, who am I kidding? Hey, we're all fans of the genre. You know, we've we've been waiting for the zombie apocalypse for years. You know, this is this isn't exactly that, <laughs> but it's not too far off. <laughs> I don't know, man. Did you see some of those pictures from Ohio where those people were protesting? It looked a lot like the zombie apocalypse. At least really zombies did. are easy to point out. <laughs> Exactly, and they won't and they won't debate with you about like stupid things and like you know yell MAGA or libtard in your face, you know like zombies got that going for them. <laughs> you know, and in terms of some of these folks, though, I didn't know whether I was looking at the zombies or uh, the shambling survivors. You know, I mean, everybody had automatic weapons slung over their shoulders and you know wearing masks and all this kind of thing. I mean. But the fact is, is that we knew ahead of time that all this stuff was coming. So um, maybe you should have had some comics fans uh, involved somewhere along the way. Hey, but, um, you know, speaking of comics fans, actually, that's a really lousy segue because (laughs) what what we were going to be talking about. Well, one of the things we were going to be talking about on today's show uh, were sequels, sequels uh, to uh, genre-related projects, properties, and uh, maybe some of our favorite sequels, maybe some sequels that we thought were exceptional, maybe some sequels that we thought were really crappy, you know, so, uh, and not necessarily all, um, not necessarily all movie or TV. I mean, if there's uh, somebody who has a, a comic book sequel, perhaps, uh, then that also is uh, is is fair game so in fact uh, I think that I am gonna get us started because uh, I think about the crisis on infinite earths uh, that uh, of course the uh, seminal publication uh, from 1985 by DC Comics uh, the 12 issue spectacular where they essentially consolidated their universe they destroyed the multiverse and everything ended up being on a single Earth. And uh, as it happens, there was a sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths that I happen to think was also exceptionally well done. And um, that uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, because it's what they call the Crisis Trilogy. So um, the second part of that was Infinite Crisis, and that was... Uh, written by Jeff Johns and illustrated by Phil Jimenez. And I thought that that was just exceptionally well done. I mean, they extended out the story. Uh, you got to see some real heroic stuff from the original Superman from 1938, Cal L. And that's just with an L as opposed to the E-L. And um, he actually, I, and I'm not going to tell you if you haven't seen it, but or if you haven't read it, rather, but uh, the the original Superman, uh, for, he does some really heroic stuff, and uh, it was it was it was big time. Anyway, so that that was what I thought I would lead with a, a comic book sequel. But uh, I'm sure we got all kinds of wonderful sequel stuff that we can talk about. And uh, I think let's kick it to Brandon uh, to get us started. Sure thing. Um, so I really did think this out. So. Um... You know what? I, I did give a list of the ones that I have, but I mean, I can just do my my top three. Um, just let's, for the sake why, of why, 
I think we're going to go round robin. So, so you don't shoot your wad here all at once. <laughs> you know, let's give us yeah, one yeah. and uh, and we'll move on. One, possibly two, because uh, I know sometimes people get excited. But so we'll do that. Okay, and, then we'll, so, and we'll come back what, around. I'll do two and three then. Um, so number three for me would be, uh, you know, I'm going to hop right into film. So uh, X2, X-Men United. Um, hmm. uh, the first X-Men, you know, a lot of people didn't think that that uh, a lot of comic books would be taken seriously. And don't get me wrong, like, I still hold the first Blade in high regard. I know a lot of people kind of get on the bandwagon of X-Men um, uh, as a... Uh, kind of like the grandfather of, you know, the, the comic book movies that are, you know, take things a bit seriously. Blade is in there, but um, I put X-Men X2 in that regard because uh, there's so many elements of that that work very well. And, and, and there not only does it work, um, you know, just by virtue of the, you know, the ex- exceptional uh, ensemble that you have. Um, where you have like legit actors that you know that are taking you know the story seriously, but you have a lot of characters in there, and the fact that you have all of these you know uh, um, subplots of of uh, different characters and things that are going on with them, and it still manages to work without it feeling messy. Um, is a true testament. However way you feel about, you know, Bron Singer in his personal life, you know, he knows how to direct the film. Mm. So uh, X, X2, uh, X-Men United is my number three. Um, number two, uh, and then, then I'll uh, pass the baton, I would say, is uh, the Raimi Spider-Man 2. Um, I know a lot of people are uh, really love... Uh, what is it, uh, Into the Spider-Verse? And don't get me wrong, I love that film. Uh, but um, there's just something to be said about uh, having uh, having a film that uh, not only has, in, in the same, same respect as uh, uh, X2, um, functions on its own even without, you know, a lot of the the super um, super heroic elements that, that come into play um, uh, throughout, or I should say that are sprinkled throughout the film. Um, it, it works uh, and it still holds today. If you watch it today, it's, it still holds as a, as a entertaining uh, film. And uh, there's just something to be said about ha- doing so well at a film that you unknowingly uh, talk yourself into actually directing a film more than two decades, uh, nearly two decades later. This is me talking about Sam Raimi now directing uh, Doctor Strange 2, because, you know, anyone who's like an evil guy. Yeah, the uh, multiverse. Uh, film, multiverse of madness, yeah. He name dropped Doctor Strange in Spider-Man 2, which I find like insane and surreal that, you know, you have that uh, intuition, even unknowingly having that intuition of knowing that you would, um, you know, be able to direct that film. But just with that villain too, with Doc Ock, um, if you really think about it, he's and don't get me wrong, I love that villain. He's such if if it's not executed the right way, it could be really silly. But it he feels 
it, it felt realistic. It felt like it had weight to it that it could be something that was plausible based on the way it was executed. Um, and even today, that train sequence, like it still holds <laughs> up. It's still one of the best, best superhero sequences you you can see in film, even now, even after all the Avengers films that we have or MCU films that we have now. Mm. Okay, uh, Mike, what do you got there? So, I want to go. I'm gonna. I, I like the idea of doing two, so I'm gonna do the same thing. But instead, I'm gonna hop genres. I'm gonna do one. Um, and I'll, I'll, if I'm allowed to do this, I gotta ask first. Am I allowed to use books? Oh yeah, any okay. kind of All sequel right. is fine. Okay. So I'm gonna do one movie and I'm gonna do one book. Uh, the book I want to start with is actually a movie as well now, um, but I still haven't seen it yet, which is a tragedy because I loved both the original and the sequel. Uh, the book, the original was The Shining. Uh, the sequel was Doctor Sleep. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because like, to have something as iconic as The Shining, the novel itself, incredible. The movie, on a whole nother level, Like even though Stephen King didn't really like a lot of the stuff that Kubrick did, it's, it's iconic for, for various different reasons. But like to be able to have something like that and then do a sequel almost 40 years later and have it, one, resonate with the original, two, be possibly better than the original in a lot of different ways. But like just overall, like there not be like a, oh, this is just a cash grab or, oh, this is cheesy or like Dr. Sleep is one of the best books I've read, like bar bar none, hands down. Like it's one of my favorite books I've, I've read. And if you haven't read it or seen the movie, I, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend reading the book because the movie is a little bit different. But just overall, like to, to take something like that, to take something so iconic and not ham it up is, is difficult to do. And Stephen King nails it. And the way he portrays a, an adult Danny Torrance is just like spot on and dealing with all of the trauma that he dealt with as a child and dealing with this, this shining and how he copes with that as an adult is just it's it's worth the read just along because i don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it or seen the movie but like it is definitely worth a viewing or uh reading as far as hey 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 mike i'm gonna i'm gonna interrupt you just a second because yeah of course that musical cue means that it's time for us to take a short break because fantastic forum is brought to you by wera 96.7 fm We are community radio, which means this is a place where you can get involved. And it's been very enriching for me. I hope you will check it out. You can go to WERA.FM to find out more about community radio in Arlington, Virginia. So what we're going to do, we're going to pause momentarily while we acknowledge the contribution of our underwriters and our sponsors. We're also going to take the time to promote some of the other exceptional WERA shows that are coming up this weekend, but stick around because we're just scratching the surface of this sequel thing here on Fantastic Forum. And welcome back to Fantastic Forum here on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. We are your community radio station. I'm Ulysses E. Campbell. I am joined today on the show by Camille Richardson, Brandon Troy, and Mike Lunsford, a trio of wonderful experts in all things geek, and we are gathering via the miracle of technology because, of course, 
we are observing social distancing because this is the special coronavirus edition of Fantastic Forum. So uh, when last we left, uh, before the break, Mike was right smack dab in the middle of talking about some sequels that had impacted his life. And uh, the first one was actually a book, and it was Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, uh, the, uh, of course, uh, fantastic uh, book by Stephen King, scared the pants off of you, just like everything that Stephen King writes. But uh, what was the other thing that you had, Mike? The other thing, like, I feel like by bringing up a book first, people are going to assume, oh, wow, Mike is smart and well-read. No, I'm going to nerd it up like crazy now because I'm going to go with one of my favorite nerddoms, Trekdom, uh, it would be the better term, and that's going to be Star Trek. Um, to kind of set the table for this, one of the best sequels of all time, period, in film, in my opinion, is, is Star Trek II The Wrath of the Khan. For two reasons. One, it's an incredible film, but two, like... If you, if you know anything about Star Trek and the history of the film series, for this movie to have succeeded after what it was going up against it is really impressive because Paramount was super unhappy with the way the uh, motion picture did. They were, I mean, it grossed $139 million, which is still pretty good. I mean, like it, it cost $46 million, but still, they weren't happy with that because it didn't generate enough and it cost them a ton of money to make. So they greenlight the sequel and they're like, yeah, so um, it needs to be way cheaper and we don't care what you do, but you're going to have to make this cheaper. So they like they cut the budget like crazy. Um, They put all of these stipulations into it. Gene Roddenberry was like basically like pushed aside and was like, yeah, you can sort of kind of have a say, but we don't really care anymore, Gene. So just shut up. And like all of those things going up against it, you would think that like it, it would be horrible. No, in fact, it was by far one of the best Star Trek stories that's ever been told. And... You brought in new blood. You brought in Nicholas Meyer, a guy who admitted that he never had even seen Star Trek before. And you bring in new blood and you get an incredible story, a story about humanity, which is ultimately what Star Trek has always been about. It's about where humanity goes in the future. And you see that these characters that have always been heroic and, you know, infallible for the most part are flawed and human. And that's what made this story so great is that they made mistakes like if you really look at it with with, with Khan, like maybe it was kind of Kirk's fault that he never checked up on Khan like at, at all. Maybe that's part of the reason why he's out for vengeance, why it's called the Wrath of Khan. Like Kirk had a son. Like every like uh, of course he did. Could you, you see all of the <laughs> antics he had? I had, to, I had to artfully find a word for that. <laughs> yeah, evidently antics. Kirk didn't wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's. Again, human, that's something that that's a it's a consequence of who he is as a character. And you see this and it makes them stronger characters. It makes them more relatable, makes you love them more. But then, like, ultimately, the the sacrifice that is done by Spock to save everybody was just like it was so in character. But also, like, who saw that coming? Like, I mean, supposedly there were spoilers out there back in the 80s. Like, I don't know how they did that, but there were spoilers back then. And everybody was like, oh, well, Spock's going to die. And then they kind of give you, like, you know, the sleight of hand in the beginning where he dies in the Kobayashi Maru simulator. And everybody's like, oh, oh, he died. I get it. And then they nail you with it at the end. And you're like, oh, was not seeing that coming. But, yeah, Star Trek has always been one of my favorite franchises of all time. This movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. This is, hands down, easily one of the best sequels of all time. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm just going to throw in on the back end of that. Uh, you didn't mention Harb Bennett, who was the executive producer. Uh, he actually sat down and watched 
the entire 79 episode run of Star Trek before he settled on Khan as the villain. And part of the reason that he looked at the original Star Trek was he wanted to find something upon which to draw from the original series. Yeah, great call, Mike. I appreciate it. Camille? Well, the first one's going to be kind of quick, and I'm actually not going to be going with books, even though I'm the retailer. But (laughs) the first one was, um, it's going to be Captain America Winter Soldier, which I'll be honest, I think was the very best MCU film. I thought it was the best adaptation, and I thought it was the best sequel to almost any of them. I mean, I even like it more than Endgame and Infinity War and everything like that, but more so because they took the original source material, were incredibly loyal to it, while also integrating into the MCU and modernizing it in a way that made it all fit, which was an undertaking in and of itself. But, you know, you're you're seeing everything from, you know, Cap's perspective and what's going on as he's starting to unravel this mystery and then seeing what Bucky has been put through the entire time. But that, just from start to finish, was incredibly well done. And I thought one of the funniest parts actually was when... Bucky is getting interrogated and being shocked and so and then you have Pierce come through but first you see one of the doctors and it's actually Ed Brubaker so he's the one who actually wrote Winter Soldier Red Menace and Captain America yeah he's actually in that scene so that was pretty cool Um, and then also David Mack did a lot of the art for like the end sequence so like with the the credits and everything um, it was very like kind of like almost cut out looking stuff, but it looked really good. But yeah, D- David Mack did that too. But uh, but yeah, so that I absolutely loved and thought was an incredible sequel. Not just even a sequel, just a movie entirely. But my other one is going to be very, very uh, tough because <laughs> we all have different feelings on this. But I don't even know where to start. All I have to say is Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and I have feelings uh-huh. on every era, on too much of it. Uh, right now, I am in the middle of putting myself through a chronological mission that I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot with. But <laughs> I decided to, I never watched any of the animated stuff. I never watched Clone Wars. I never watched Rebels. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to do everything chronological. I'm going to do, so you know, good. Phantom Menace, Tag of the Clones, you know, going to the Clone Wars movie than the series so now that I've caught up with it all now I'm watching it weekly and then I can finally jump on to Revenge of the Sith and the rest but at least in terms of where all this came from for me was at 11 years old when I got to see the original trilogy in the theater for the first time um, and it was just the most incredible thing to me so you know everyone's probably waiting for me to say oh it's Empire Strikes Back that's the one that's the best one for me it was Return of the Jedi like, no joke. It was Return of the Jedi. It was where everything kind of came together. It was a moment where we got to see Leia step up into a completely different space, uh, willing to put her ass on a line in a completely different way than even before um, to save the person that she loved and, you know, to do it in such a dangerous path. Uh, not to mention that, but also, you know, you see her take down her her abuser and her slaver. Um, You see that, you know, if we didn't have that connection with Leia and the Ewoks, would we have even defeated the Empire? Yes, we would have still had to see 3PO, but even so, not necessarily sure if that all would have come through. Um, And then, of course, I always loved the part of, you know, there is another. And that was always, at least at the time, it was supposed to be Leia. But uh, 
I know that they've uh, kind of gone back and warped that a bit. Uh, I was happy to see that, at least in the sequel trilogy in uh, Rise of Skywalker, we got to see a moment where she had trained with Luke, which was actually originally what Lucas wanted to do. That was supposed to be her moment. The sequel trilogy was supposed to be her moment. And even though the sequel trilogy happened, I'm not a fan of it. I don't hate everything about it, no. I just, I, I wish more thought had been put into it, more planning, character development, things like that. And it's actually caused me to be far more appreciative of the prequels than I ever have been before. <laughs> One thing I want to add to what you've said is um, I think it's interesting with the Ewoks because people, they sort of gloss over a couple of interesting elements with the Ewoks. Uh, the fact that they eat humanoids and clearly... they're. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And hey, if people don't think about the fact that the reason they had a dress that fit Leah was they had eaten some girl who was about her size. Exactly, and they're not cute and cuddly. They're creepy little demon bears. Like <laughs> Their faces are not cute. No. Oh, man. <laughs> For the most part, they are not. <laughs> that was like... <laughs> Are you, can I can I can I share a mind blowing moment from like I never put together as a kid, but I put together as an adult. The whole forest moon of Endor. I thought that was the name of the planet. Like the planet was Endor. No, it turns out Endor is a big ass planet, and that was the forest moon of the planet Endor. So like apparently yeah. it's just the moon. That's all. That's all it's called. And that like. Like it came together as an adult, and I was like, "Whoa, it's a whole different thing. That's crazy." I've done the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, hey, they built on something from the first movie because the rebel base was on a moon of Yavin, and Yavin was a gas giant. You know. Yeah. Yep. So uh, yeah, but that that's something that's very cool. Okay, hey, uh, only because. I left off a couple of names. I'm going to jump back to Infinite Crisis <laughs> because I mentioned <laughs> Phil Jimenez, but also George Perez, uh, Ivan Rice, uh, and Jerry Ordway were also artists uh, on, on this uh, miniseries. And I don't want to leave anybody out because it was, it, it was so big. I mean, it had such a tremendous impact on the DC universe uh, going forward. I mean, to say nothing of all the tie-ins, uh, you know, the fact that, I mean, the lead-ups and all of that, not quite done with Infinite Crisis there. But uh, the sequel that I want to mention, it's a movie sequel, and it's Aliens, the sequel to uh, the uh, movie Alien, of course. And Alien scared the crap out of me when I was, and I was a teenager when I went to see that movie. Very slow-moving, but I had never seen anything like these H.R. Geiger designs, uh, you know, the whole chest burster thing, the face hugger. It was all disgusting. And the fact that the crew of the Nostromo did not have the necessary equipment to fight this thing I always bothered me. I mean, they're using flamethrowers and stuff like that. So in Aliens, and, and it, it freaked me out, the fact that Ripley had been in suspended animation for like 70 years you know, after that, before they found her. You know, apparently the shuttle drifted out of the regular space lanes of commerce. And anyway, so she's finally discovered all these years later. And her career is ruined, you know, because she's working on the docks, the corporation didn't want to believe her here she was the first mate on this ship uh, you know destroyed the ship and uh, didn't have any evidence to prove that there was a xenomorph involved anyway though uh, so they got the space marines ultimately because of course uh, 
this underhanded corporation sends these colonists, you know, because of course the planet where the aliens, uh, the, the alien ship crashed and all these eggs were, had been colonized by this time. And so uh, in response to uh, Ripley having told them about this stuff, they're like, hey, let's send these settlers over there and see if there's anything to it. And of course, the infection spreads throughout the settlement and, uh, you know, it's just a, a total cluster frack, as, as it were. But so the Space Marines get sent in and I was so hyped that you finally had people who were prepared to fight these things, you know, even though uh, and, and that was one of the more entertaining scenes, too, um, you know, because uh, you, you've got the Space Marines getting their asses whooped by these aliens, uh, you know, before they kind of turn around and get it together. But uh, there was so much that was great about that movie. Uh, you know, the fact that you had this female lead, uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver kind of broke the mold, uh, you know, with this, uh, they've referred to her as a Ram bet uh, kind of character. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, she was strong. She was smart. I mean, she even took over the Space Marines, basically. I mean, you know, telling them, hey, yeah, here's what we do. We take off and we nuke the entire site from orbit. You know, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so much that was great about that movie, and not the least of which was that you finally had uh, a group of people that were actually set up and well-equipped to take on these horrible aliens. The alien is about the most disgusting thing that I have ever seen uh, in movies or books uh, or or television so time to reintroduce and we're listening to fantastic forum on wera 96.7 fm radio arlington i'm ulysses e campbell joined here today on the show by camille richardson brandon troy and mike lunsford we are deep into our discussion of sequels and some of our favorite sequels and what we're enjoying so um let me see as I recall, it's uh, back around to Brandon. And Brandon, I, you, you, you kind of saved your, your number one. You'd uh, kicked out number two and number three. I hope nobody stepped on you <laughs> as we went through the cycle. You did, but don't worry. I had my own reasons for liking the films. Um, uh, and this is in like no, no specific order. I have it as like 1A, 1B, 1C. <laughs> Uh, if you would, um, because it's depending on my day, uh, they kind of rotate around in my head as my number one. Um, you are so I'll very first well say, and I know it was fun. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll first say uh, The Winter Soldier, and it's actually for a different reason. Um, I would say The Winter Soldier because um, outside of maybe The Avengers, I would arguably say, and I don't know, I don't think too folk, too many that folks really think about it, but I would arguably say that it saved the MCU as a whole, because for a number of reasons. One, let's uh, if if you go back down the back down memory lane, so to speak, of the first couple of films after Avengers, we had what? We had Iron Man three, a film that people were so pissed off about the villain that they had to retcon the the villain uh, in a short film, and then actually place him in a new film that is yet to be released, Shang Chi. So there's that. And then you also have the awesome film that is Thor The Dark World that few people want to comment on or really want to (laughs) acknowledge uh, in the Thor trilogy um, before we got Winter Soldier. Um, And then I would also say with Winter Soldier, 
The reason why I also say that it arguably saved the MCU is up to that point, they really didn't adhere to that idea of um, making each individual film kind of its own genre. Because at that point, they with Winter Soldier, they kind of adhered to the idea of that old school spy thriller. And then up to that point, when they saw that it worked, they were like, "Oh, okay, hey, let's let's uh, let's try to stick to this formula and and try to have a you know unique genre or mishmash of genres in mind as we go forward in doing other individual um, you know films or franchises with with different characters. And that that's been a formula that seemed to you know, work with them. And then lastly, of course, you know, if Winter Soldier didn't work, um, you know, we wouldn't have the Russo brothers. I mean, these are two directors that came from what, from television, doing like shows like Arrested Development and Community, and, and lo and behold, you come and find out that they can, you know, make terrific Marvel films. So, um, you know, that that's uh, one of my number ones. Uh, I know you touched on Alien. Um, the fact that you know you're you're following up from a film that is such an iconic film and you know how do you really <laughs> how do you really uh come back from that and try to like top that you know you, you're not going to try to make the same type of film obviously and i'm sure people have said this. people have said this a lot but it's true um you know you try to you know switch it up and you know make it into a different genre so by making it more fast-paced and making it into an action film it kind of has its own identity um, versus, you know, what you have in Alien, which is, you know, more of a slow burn and more of a claustrophobic film. And, I mean, I love Aliens. Uh, Aliens is actually my default film. Like, if it's on TV, like, it doesn't matter where I am, I have to watch it all the way through. Um, I absolutely love that film. Um, and then, lastly, I would have uh, The Dark Knight. Um, you know, one of the few films where you have... Uh, a few superhero films that we have an actor that was, you know, nominated for, you know, their performance, you know, where uh, superhero films get, you know, a lot of flack for, you know, they're kind of, you know, zany and they're kind of silly, but, you know, uh, the Academy recognized the, the talent that was on display, not, you know, not just with the performances that you had in that film, but also, you know, Christopher Nolan did an exceptional job in, in trying to uh, ground something that's so uh, uh, um, out of the ordinary or, or something that's so uh, over the top. He was still able to ground a lot of those elements and make it seem feasible, you know, in, you know, a real life context. So those are my three. Well, OK, those are good ones. All right. Hey, so I think it's uh, Mike next. Yes, I am. I am next on the list here. So what's nice about this is like, I, I like that we're all crossing over because a lot of the ones that are my favorite sequels are ones that you guys are mentioning. So that's I'm glad that we're all on the same page here. Um, quick mention, we've already talked about Star Wars a lot. Uh, Empire, Empire Strikes Back is just like, in, in my opinion, to have a movie like Star Wars where it was just like, all right, let's do this one off thing. Yes, George Lucas has said, oh, I have the whole thing plotted out. OK, sure, whatever. But like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we all know he didn't, okay? But, like, the fact that you take this basic story, this awesome adventure story, and you manage to add depth to it in a level that, like, really changes the whole scope of the whole story when you look at it as a whole. But also, too, there's things that happen in this movie that I, I like, think about like this. Think about how much bad luck the good guys have in this movie. Like, <laughs> 
the the Falcon just for no reason. Hey, let's go to hyperdrive. Doesn't work. What? Like it, it's it's kind of flipping what happened in the first one on its head because there was so much that happened in their favor. Like you just happen to have this random kid that you found on a desert planet flying a, a, a flying a fighter jet for the first time. Uh, shoots a shot because he has a magical mystical force that he can use and it nails the thing and blows the whole thing up like all of these things came together but then you're seeing it on the flip side what if things didn't come together for you and to see all of that happen and then take this character Darth Vader who's already scary everybody's like man this is a great villain and then you find out that he's Luke's father and like for a lot of people we all just thought he was a robot we were like wait that's not there's a dude inside of there like, I remember being a kid and, like, watching this and, like, being blown away. Because, like, it, it just, like, I, I never put two and two together. But, it like, it changes everything. And it, it basically, this, yes, okay, so Star Wars was the first. But it was Empire Strikes Back that really allowed them to create this monster of a IP that they have now. Because if Empire Strikes Back flopped or they used, um, what was that novel that they wrote? Um... Um, splinter of the mind side. Thank you. Yeah, if that became the sequel, man, come on. Like, <laughs> like I'm glad they used Empire Strikes Back. Let's just say that. But it was be- it was because Empire Strikes Back was so good that they were able to do amazing things going forward. Um, and still, like that that fight scene. Yes, I know there have been more dramatic or more um, awe inspiring choreographed lightsaber duels, but the the emotion in that duel between vader and luke is is still to this day it's my favorite it's my favorite lightsaber duel we've seen in any of the movies i know everybody talks about the other ones i don't care this one is the best um the other movie that i wanted to mention is one that like we haven't really even touched on we did mention the director sam raimi um but it's it's so unlike the first two in the series and that's evil dead and evil dead 2 but army of darkness is one of my favorite sequels of all time because it's not really like any of the other movies before it it is it's it's weird it's a horror movie but is it a horror movie because it's kind of like an action adventure slapstick comedy thing and like i remember being a kid and and it was on sci-fi channel i was maybe like 13 or 14 years old and watching it and just being blown away i was like what am i watching this is the most insane thing i've ever seen in my life it's scary it's hilarious like bruce campbell just like just choose scenery the entire movie and like he's basically the main set piece of that entire movie and he's just absolutely fantastic he's absolutely hilarious like it was it's such a good movie um don't expect like an amazing storyline <laughs> because it's like it's so out there and ridiculous but it's just it it that's like Brandon mentioned um, aliens is one of those movies. Once it's on, he has to watch it. Army of darkness is like that for me. If it's on, like I, ha- I don't care if it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm staying up and suffering the, the, you know, the lack of sleep to watch all of Army of darkness. Well, okay. There you go. Hey, um, we are almost out of time, but we certainly have time uh, for Camille and Camille. It looks like you might be, uh, like I said, you were in the anchor leg here. looks like you might be practically <laughs> taking us out. <laughs> All right. Well, I did want to bring up to that kind of like something that was good that ended early and then was given a sequel later to make up for it. So one was first was going to be a book uncanny X-Force by Rick Remender, which actually ended up being my favorite modern X book of Pretty much anything since the early 90s, 80s, 
basically. Um, but you're dealing with Apocalypse, you're dealing with him as a child, and the whole point is, you know, do we go and kill this child? Is this the right thing to do? Well, the series ended early because then they launched Marvel Now in 2012, and that was really upsetting because this was a great, great run. The next Uncanny X-Force was garbage. It was like they had not even read anything that had happened before. I forget if it was done by Hopeless or Humphreys, but... Uh, but then we did get hope with Uncanny Avengers. So Rick Remender ended up taking the storyline he was dealing with in Uncanny X-Force into Uncanny Avengers and got to continue with it, which was actually really cool to see. Um, and it's actually where you start to see little things happening with Sam Wilson becoming Cap. So you actually see when, you know, original Cap you know, becomes old and things like that. So you kind of start to see those things that ended up in Endgame. So that's kind of neat on top of it. Uh, aside from that, uh, the other one I wanted to talk about, and this was a TV show, Deadwood. Deadwood is one of my favorite shows of all time. You're dealing with um, everybody going west, gold rush, you know, uh, annexation. They don't want to be a part of the United States. They want to continue running their town the way they've been running it with, you know, the brothel owners at the top and everything like that. We don't even want to share if we want none of that. So it's, you know, you're dealing with um, uh, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, uh, Calamity Jane, types like that. But they really did their homework with it. They did such a great job of it. But it ended after season three, which was actually the best season, but because it was so expensive to make because they did it so well. So 10 years later, 10 years later, the fact that they got everyone who was still alive to come back to make a movie to end it out was incredible. Uh, I, w I won't say that it was as great as the show because it's just a movie, but it tied it up beautifully and I thought it was a great way to see them as they are now, or at least, you know, back then, but for what we're watching now. Uh, but that was a, a really cool thing to see and I feel like we got some redemption with that uh, because it was always kind of left to just wondering what happened next. So the fact that they actually went back to do that and the fact that it was received so well just shows how many people were still wanting more and more. Wow. Yeah, those are some great ones. You know, clearly, this is a topic that has legs, and I think we're <laughs> going to have to come back around to it because I've been really impressed at all of the different and varied sort of sequels that everybody has had to mention. You know, and uh, you know, I, I'd like to be able to get more into the impact of these uh, because um, I would, uh, if we if we had time for another round, I would mention Superman too, only because Superman the movie was such a tremendous film, and I I, I loved the because Superman two sort of set the stage for stuff that came later. You know, as uh, Chris Reeve as Superman fighting Terrence Stamp and the Kryptonian villains, because, you know, we hadn't seen anything like that up till then. So I, if I had more time, I would go into depth with that. But regrettably, it's only an hour-long show, and uh, we are out of time. So uh, I'm going to thank my panelists. I'm going to thank you for tuning in. Of course, Fantastic Forum is also a television show. And if you happen to be in the Arlington, Virginia area, you can see it on AIM, Arlington Independent Media, Comcast Channel 69, Verizon Fios Channel 38, Saturday and Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Uh, of course, there's a website if you want to check that out. It's fantasticforum.tv, and we've got episodes of the TV series. There are segments of the series broken out. You can listen to the radio show. Of course, the radio show itself, 
is rebroadcast each and every Thursday at 3 p.m. from 3 to 4. If you miss any of it on Saturdays, you can check it out then. And of course, come back again next Saturday. Same bat time, same bat station.